right, we're here at Fortune Kit Studios with Howard Billerman. Uh, he's the co-owner of the Hotel Tatango Recording Studio in Montreal. You know, he's associated with like Godspeed, Silver Mount Zion, Arcade Fire, Wolf Parade. Some would even go as far as to say he's a Montreal music guy. So, uh, Howard, thanks for being here. Yeah, no problem. There's a lot of Montreal music guys. I'm a Montreal, I'm Montreal. A Montreal music guy. Yeah. At least lot, two. I, we got two right here. I can't think of a third <laughs> yeah. one. What are the chances? What are the chances? We can prove that, the existence of two right now. Anything beyond that, we don't have... They're both on the same podcast. <laughs> yeah. You found two guys. You found two Montreal music guys. But yeah, I mean, uh, how has the pandemic been treating you, Howard? Well, so get this. Our government has deemed recording studios an essential service. What? Interesting. Yeah, so we <laughs> never had to close. And uh, business is just as good as it's always been. I'm not doing much. I'm mostly working from home. But some of my partners and some freelance engineers are are in there almost every day. It's nuts. Are they doing um, are they doing like socially distanced sessions? I mean, I would hope so. Um, I think everyone's wearing a mask and I think everyone is trying to stay as far apart as possible. Um, but yeah, it's I mean, I have to say for me, it's had a nice silver lining. I get to hang out with my family more and I get to work from home more and um, you know, there's this, I once read this article with, uh, with this, this business guy who was talking about retirees and how it takes retirees about nine months of retirement before they stop thinking about work. Yeah. And, uh, I kind of feel like around November and December, I was like, maybe I'll never go back to work. <laughs> like this is, I'm not thinking about music gear. I'm not thinking about like, oh, the studio needs to be booked. I'm not thinking of like. Maybe I've officially retired now. Well, how does it feel? Feels fantastic. Yeah, it feels fantastic to have like, uh, okay, let me back up. In like, remember when, Dan, you're in Montreal, so you remember like in the summer, the numbers started to go down. Yes. In like uh, June, July, right? Yeah, it was the part of me tail end of the first spike, basically. And then, so part of me thought, like, if this fucking pandemic ended tomorrow, I would feel like such a fucking lazy ass. Like, you know, we all have those lists of like, well, if I have some spare time, I'll paint the shed and then I'll clean the basement up. And then, oh, the that plug in the basement, that polarity's reversed. I'll rewire that. It's like, I did nothing. Like, I didn't even read a book. Like, you know, <laughs> on my night table, there's like a stack of books and I didn't even read a single page of a single book. And it was super depressing. And so like... For the whole month that followed, like every single day, I would try and do something that I'd promised myself, like if I ever have time. And so like a lot of stuff got done. The house got, I cleaned up the house so much that our neighbor, uh, our neighbor Manny was like, hey, are you moving? I was like, no, I'm not moving. Why? He's like, what's well, all the garbage in front of the house? <laughs> it's like, well, I've just cleaned up the house and thrown out garbage. You're like, yeah, um, that's just all the trash that's been in my house for years. <laughs> yeah. I, did, I, so, uh, I definitely had a similar thing with, um, you know, the, the, once the, once the operator's Patreon got going and I could sort of breathe a sigh of relief that I wasn't going to be thrown out of my apartment and onto the street, um, because I had some money coming in, I, I started really enjoying, uh, not being either in a recording studio in rehearsal or on tour, um, Sometime in the summer, I guess I built a small home studio and, uh, yeah, I just really enjoyed being domestic. And then a couple of months ago, I started really missing being on tour again. So, I mean, I know like I speak from an incredibly like privileged place of like a, having a government that paid the Serb at the beginning and b like having some savings to not have to work. And I know a lot of people aren't in this position, but I kind of hope we learn we learn something when everything goes back to normal that we sort of learn to take time off, you know? Yeah. Be a little more like the French or uh, the Swedes. I think America as a country, it's definitely not going to happen here. <laughs> Even if people want it to be that way, the system is designed to be brutal enough that most people won't be able to do that anyway. Right. Yeah. Um, I have a, I have a confession, which is that uh, 
my uh, my legs and my ass kill because I made a poor choice. What? And uh, what? now that you're all hanging in suspense, <laughs> I went cross country skiing today. <laughs> and um, it, it, I would say it's a bit of a mistake. What? But uh, like the the concept of co- cross country skiing in general is is a mistake or or so like. I turned 50 this year and all the way up to turning 50, I thought there's a real line in the sand when you, you see like, like two thirds of, of men over 50, you, well, w- about one third of men over 50, you're like, yeah, hey, that guy looks pretty good. Like, uh, George Clooney, you're like that guy's taking care of himself. Sure. He's, he's looking good. And then two thirds of the men over 50, you're thinking that guy really let it slip. Like... <laughs> He, yeah. <laughs> there's no going back to that guy, how that guy was, it's just you know, diminishing returns from here on out pretty much. And so I, I knew like, okay, I'm not going to be George Clooney, but like you got to, I got to start taking care of myself. And the, certainly the pandemic has not helped the waistline yes. at all. Um, so I was a few weeks ago, I announced I was going to start doing some sort of exercise and I, thought like what exercise would a middle-aged Jew like myself fall into naturally? Um, and then uh, I decided, I told Sharon, I said, I'm, I'm going to buy a rowing machine for the basement. And she said, you're absolutely not buying a rowing machine. And, and I said, but why? It's like, it's the perfect, like, you know, it's very cardiovascular, you use all your, your body. And she said, you're going to use it once and then it's going to sit in the basement laughing at you. Do you th- and, uh, is she right about that though? Well, so I didn't, I was like, okay, I'm not going to buy a rowing machine. And then a light bulb went on and I thought cross country skiing, how hard could it be? Um, So the first problem when you're trying to acquire cross country skis in the middle of winter, in the middle of a pandemic is you can't get them. Like it took me, I consider myself an excellent shopper. Yeah, And it took me- did someone just get murdered outside of someone's apartment? <laughs> what uh, was that? I think that's Devoika uh, having a uh, having a uh, clubhouse meeting. Gotcha. Yeah. Um, anyhow, it took me ten days. Ten days to what acquire is, uh, said. Sorry, what? Yeah, what is a clubhouse? Who ha? Clubhouse. What meeting? is clubhouse? Club clubhouse is a. Um, it's kind of like Discord, but you can't. Uh, there's no video. There's no. Um, text component you can't drop links in it and uh that's that's all i know so it's just a phone call basically well with a bunch of people and you set up rooms and uh you have uh talks it's a party line do you think their talk is better <laughs> than our talk i don't know i mean she's, she seems pretty animated so it's true let's have the the boys chat invade the girls chat there and see what's <laughs> going on yeah. Sorry, Howard, you got to you got to finish your story here. Oh, well, I, so it took track. a long time. It just took a long time to find the skis and the poles and the boots. And then I thought, you know, Valentine's Day is coming. <laughs> Wouldn't I be just the nicest of guys to also buy Sharon cross-country skis? And so um, she was slightly mortified because apparently there's been several uh, skiing accidents in her family. I don't think any of them were cross-country skiing accidents, but she's equated skiing with, like, broken ankles. Uh, uh, I just got to jump in and say for the listeners, uh, Sharon is Howard's wife and uh, Wolf Parade's longtime front-of-house sound technician. It's true. This is all true. Um, and so we went, we went cross-country skiing, and I was assuring her it's easy. It's like walk, gliding on snow. No, no more difficult than walking. And boy, did I fucking eat those words today because I can barely feel anything below my navel. (laughs) So should you have gotten the rowing machine instead? Well, I suspect I would probably be, be unable to feel everything above my navel if that was the case. I think the point is I'm just, I've just, it's just been so long since I've used anything other than my brain. Yeah. Yeah. Well, the thing is, uh, if if you were still in the studio all the time, you'd have all the exercise of wrapping XLR cables. You'd be it's still true. In I would shape. have fantastic forearms. Yeah, you would have giant Popeye forearms from cleaning up all the cable spaghetti in the in the studio. You know. In any case, it's it's wonderfully scenic to go cross country skiing, 
but it is, it actually felt like exercise. Like we got lapped by two grandmothers, lapped us. Humiliating. (laughs) Absolutely. I fell down left, right. I couldn't, there was like a tiny, uh, we, we went in Jerry park and they have a trail and, um, so the trail intersects with where people walk. Mm-hmm. And so at that point, the cross-country skiing dips down like maybe two inches and you have to like walk across the road and it goes up a little, a slight incline, maybe one and a half inch incline. And I couldn't get up the fucking incline. I would like put my one cross-country ski. It was like an Inspector Clouseau episode. I put one ski up and then I got the other ski and both of me just slid back down to the point where someone literally asked me if I needed a push. <laughs> So let me let me get this straight. For Valentine's Day, you gave uh, your wife the gift of physically incapacitating yourself from the waist down and publicly humili- uh, public humiliation. Correct. <laughs> she actually told me she was never attracted to me more in that moment. <laughs> <laughs> I feel like they really misrepresent uh, the skiing thing. Because the two options they give you are downhill, which sounds really easy, and then cross-country, which sounds like you're going flat. But then they throw uphill at you? Yeah. Mm. yeah. They should call it uphill skiing. Yeah. Full it's disclosure. True. <laughs> it's true. I mean, they should just come up with a whole different name for it. Like, you know, in the same way that they call soccer football and football's football, that's two different sports. This, this, this One should be skiing and one should be like traversing skiing. or something. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, American skiing or Canadian I skiing. I think uh, Howard, you should have had more of like a chip on your shoulder when those like grandmas lapped you. You should have given them like the "Do you know who I am? Have you heard of Constellation Records or something like that?" You know, really, really lay into that. You should have said, "Have you ever heard Funeral?" Because uh, you're gonna have yours soon, and then <laughs> skied away. <laughs> oh, come on! Can't we have to respect the elderly? And it's also it's also uh, wise never to insult anyone as you're lying in a bed of snow trying to figure out how to stand up. <laughs> I think we have to um, respect the elderly who are not better athletes than us. But if they're more athletic than us, it's okay to disrespect them. <laughs> Agree. <laughs> yeah. If they could kick your ass. Yeah, you got to put with them in their place so they don't. Yeah, if, if you're <laughs> confronted by... You can only bully a kid if they could clearly kick your ass. If you're confronted by a large <laughs> child, it's open season, you know? Oh, man. Yeah, I feel like I've I've been physically relatively lazy in the pandemic. But I guess... So I, like, I'm in my early 30s, so I feel like I had a similar moment in terms of just like being 30 of like, you know, usually I'm just... I'll go outside in sub-zero weather and not, not even put gloves on because I don't care. But yesterday I was out there and I'm like, man, my hands are really cold. I need to wear gloves. Now I'm just at the age where I need to be a normal person now instead of like a psycho. Yeah, you can't just go out in a denim jacket and no hat, you know? Exactly. Like that's what I'm used to doing. But like, man, I'm so cold. I got to do something about this. I had that. I still do that. I'm that crazy ass white boy that wears shorts all year long. (laughs) (laughs) I... I had that experience the other day, like, uh, I was walking back from downtown Montreal to my, to my apartment and it's about an hour, hour and 15 minutes, I'd say. And you walk past, uh, past the mountain, uh, it's pretty much uphill and it was minus 19 or minus 20 with the wind, probably like minus 25. And I started walking and I was like, this is fucking great. I love walking in Montreal in the winter. It's so picturesque. There's no one out because it's so cold, except for me, because I'm tough. And uh, about six blocks later, I was I was a fucking wreck. I was trying to find a cab. Uh, my nose was <laughs> running. And I was thinking about when I was in my 20s and I would just walk to work in Sub-Zero. Can't do it anymore. Do you get colder as you get older? I don't. I don't know what it is. I think my tolerance for like just physical discomfort is simultaneously higher in some places and lower in terms of like my fingers and toes being cold. Yeah. A few weeks ago, uh, something fell on the floor and I bent over to pick it up. And as I was getting up, I went, Oi! and I have no idea where that came from. Like I suddenly became an elderly Jewish man as if it were in my DNA to have the response to something be difficult, be like that. It was unbelievable. Are you going to embrace it, Howard? Are you just going to, you know, just run with it? I, I don't know. I really, I really feel like I need to make a choice 
whether or not to be, to pretend to be young anymore. You know what I mean? Like, it's like, how many more years can I just wear a hoodie and cords? Oh, I mean, you can wear a hoodie forever, I think, personally. I know, but yeah, you know, everyone has seen that guy who's like 60 and you're just like, give it up, buddy. Come on. Like, oh yeah. Yeah. That's, I don't want to be that that's guy. That's true. When I, I lived in LA for a while and when I, I remember every time I would fly in to the city from like doing a show or something, I would go to the arrivals lounge and I would always see the elderly toddler, like the elderly funky toddler. Cause LA is just <laughs> fucking full of them. And it would be like a 50 something year old guy with extremely complicated shoes and like a complicated haircut and like a very loud, like puffy jacket. I was hoping you're going to say he had a big lollipop in one of the little hats <laughs> with the little whirly thing on it. Might as, might as well have had, you know, and I, and I always looked at those guys and was and was like, this is a cautionary tale. Just don't be that guy. Don't be like that guy. I think conversely, though, Howard, you could also just get like a forehead tattoo <laughs> and just really lean into being young. <laughs> there are very few well-dressed old guys. Some of them are dapper, but average old guy is wearing a shirt that says, like, I'm a Thursday guy <laughs> that they were advertised on Facebook Tucked into a yeah. pair of carpenter jeans. <laughs> Don't mess with a grandpa like, who was born in February. <laughs> White sneakers that are pure green, like Shrek green from lawn clippings. It's true. It this, is kind uh, of a drip. If last year or two years ago, I recorded, it happened twice actually, I recorded the daughters of people whose parents I recorded 20 something years ago. And that in that moment, I was like, I'm old. Holy <laughs> shit. Who was it? It was uh, Murray from the Deers, his daughter, and uh, Mike Weber from that band, The Snitches. Yeah. His daughter was in Rock Camp for Girls. I was giving some free studio time to Rock Camp for Girls, and she was one of the participants in it. And uh, it just just saying the words, I recorded your dad. Hey, I recorded your dad is so fucking creepy Like to have that come <laughs> yeah. out of anyone's mouth. Hey, I recorded your dad, you know? Um, that just made me feel like, uh, you know, it's a young man's game. Yeah. But conversely, the fact that you survived in an industry that's very difficult to survive in for that long, you should like feel good about that. You know, I agree. that's true. Yeah, that's true. Well, look at like Clive Davis or Quincy Jones. They've probably recorded six generations. <laughs> yeah, Quincy Jones recording Michael Jackson's children. <laughs> <laughs> Everyone on this uh, on this chat has has read those two Quincy Jones interviews, right, from a few years ago. Oh yeah, when he talks about yeah. the Beatles and stuff, those are great. I reread those a couple months ago. Man, if every interview was like that interview, that was a fantastic. Those were fantastic. I mean, I wonder. I think one of his daughters was like, "Yeah, Quincy has lost it. That none of that is true." But I would like to think that like at least 25% would, would be true, you know? Yeah. And I think at a certain point, it doesn't doesn't really matter whether it's true or not. It's just, it was just nice to see somebody speaking openly like that. Yeah, it's like oral tradition. Yeah, that's true. It doesn't true. matter if it's true. It's how people remember uh, the past. And it gets blurred, and eventually it's like John and Paul used to whack each other off. Oh, yeah, and, that's another uh, classic from a couple years ago. <laughs> we fix poverty with do they even know it's Christmas? And that's music history. Yeah. The Beatles um, jacking off interview was really good because it was basically unsolicited where Paul McCartney just started telling that story. <laughs> like the question didn't really I missed this. It. What? What? This is. What, yeah. It was, what? I want to say Rolling Stone, maybe like two years ago ish, where Paul McCartney just started telling the story that pre Beatles, like when they were teenagers. Him and Paul McCartney and their friends would just like jack off in the same room, like facing away from each other. <laughs> because they're yeah, British, because they're British and they're insane polite. Insane story. <laughs> yeah. Musicians get old enough, and that's every interview they give. Yeah. yeah. It's great. Yeah. They're all like that. When we went to open for the Strokes, we played a game called Crackers. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> So basically, Howard, now uh, if you're going to age into the elder statesman role, you just need to start saying insane shit in conversations like this. <laughs> oh, boy. Yeah, that's right. You need, you need to start telling tales. Telling tales. I somehow, I wonder some, I feel like everyone else who is in the room 
with me has better tales or better memories. I don't know. This is how I feel like maybe I've, I've had an early onset of Alzheimer's because uh, every once in a while someone will tell a tale. And I'm like, really? That happened, eh? Huh. Maybe I'll just make, make shit up. Dan, remember when you jerked off Spencer when we were recording that Wolf Parade record? <laughs> yeah, totally. <laughs> Tell that to Rolling Stone. <laughs> uh, do you, Howard, do you remember when uh, I made Spencer play that amazing uh, keyboard solo on Cloud Shadow on the Mountain by taking a laser pointer and moving it up and down the keys of the keyboard, and he followed it like a cat? Oh, yeah, yeah, that was great. <laughs> That's when, uh, what was that, Arlen, didn't Arlen, Arlen took a dump on, who was it either... Was it Haji or was it? I can't remember who it was. He, Arlen was just taking dumps everywhere. Yeah. Remember that? Yeah, that was his signature <laughs> move at the time. He would uh, sneak up on you, pin you down, and just take a shit on your chest. What a guy. Yeah. Huh. It was, simp- it was simpler time back then. <laughs> yeah. But- you guys were all cats. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, basically laser pointers. <laughs> shit. I they moved a litter box into the live room. <laughs> uh, yeah. Yeah. I was thinking too, maybe Howard, all your recollections of recording are just like engineering things. Like I remember this one Royer 121, man, that was a mic, you know, like, <laughs> no Possibly. interesting stories. Possibly. Maybe wow. I, just... I had these really convenient mic stands that wouldn't break. <laughs> <laughs> all technical detail. I once recorded a band. Here's the, the only, the only thing that I remember worth telling in this very moment is I recorded these kids, they were 17. This was a, just a few years ago. And they were really insistent that we record to tape. And um, so, you know, I fired up the two-inch machine and, and they bought a roll of tape and we did the first take. And I was like, great, come in, come and listen. And as they were coming in, they said, Howard, when we record to tape, do we need to send it away to be developed before we can hear it? <laughs> <laughs> they didn't know what it was, but they wanted to. <laughs> they just heard that they yeah. want to do it. Yeah, well, it's awesome. like, oh, fuck, you've never made, you're so young. You grew up in the burning CDR generation. You never made a mixtape to anybody. Wow. Anyway, I told them, well, you do have to get it developed, but fortunately we have the machine in the basement. So I'll be back in half an hour. <laughs> You know, developing costs an extra $200. It's really embarrassing when you record a sex jam to tape and you send it away to get developed and the person at the at the pharmacy sees it. <laughs> yeah. I personally like to keep the negatives of all recordings that I do. Just to sit back up. <laughs> you can inverse the colors of the recording. Hey, uh, does anyone know, um, what did they call stereos before stereo was invented yeah, that's a good question was invented Monos. like yeah they did well they didn't call it did they call them high i was gonna say hi-fi ah but high fidelity and mono don't seem to go together in my mind yeah hi-fi was sort of contemporaneous with stereo i think so like around 50 65 66 67 what did people people say let's what did they call it this is i've, I've been trying to figure this out for years Maybe they didn't have a name for it. They're like, I guess this thing either a record player or a radio. Yeah, hmm. the record machine. It's like uh, releasing an untitled song. It just didn't have a name. You're just like, put it on the untitled device there and let's listen to <laughs> put it. Put it on the player. <laughs> the player. And the whole, ga- the whole the family would gather around and listen. <laughs> they called it the disc man <laughs> for records. I, should, I think uh, moving backward a second here, we've talked about this before on this show, but I'm curious, Howard... Uh, Sometimes it's it's fun for me to think about that era when Pro Tools was getting better and better and tape was becoming more and more of a chore. Like, you know, like everyone of like sort of like Dan's age and your age who like went through that process, like that transition. Were you the kind of person who embraced Pro Tools and things like that quickly or were you very like anti or like where did you fall on that spectrum, I guess? We didn't actually have Pro Tools until about uh, 2008. So every record I made before then was to tape. And then, um, I don't know, I've always treated it just like a tape machine. Um, basically just record to it and, and play back from it and mix on the board, use the board, the analog board to do the mix. Um, yeah, but sense. like for me, tape was never, like I wasn't ever, the, the big sell was never that I was en- enamored by the way that it sounded. I just thought that the limitations of 24 tracks made better records. And so I tried to, record to Pro Tools the same way and just sort of ask, does this record need 
these overdubs? Do we need to triple track this? Or can we sort of keep this session Spartan? Um, so then once I was able to bring the sort of tape workflow into Pro Tools, then I embraced it that way. Now working at home in the pandemic is a whole different thing. Um, you know, I'm mixing in the box at home. Just like, the, I think I've just mixed my third only ever in the box record out of like 500 oh, wow. records. Wow. Um, so that's been a, just a bit of a head scratcher about how to do it and get the workflow and be happy with it. Yeah. I think it's almost always like how you learn, like when it comes to like on the board versus in the box, it's almost always just like how you learned. Cause once you create your like own little workflow, it's not that one's better than the other. It's just that each individual gets used to one thing and you might as well. Yeah, like, the thing about a board is you can like, you know, you, you can put your hand on each fader and bring one thing up while you bring one thing down, but a computer only has one mouse. And so it's two operations. Yeah, and that makes sense. It's not, if you're balancing, let's say where a kick drum sits with a bass guitar, sometimes you want to put your finger on both faders and just move them until you find the sweet spot. And so that's just one stupid little, you know, uh, practical thing where having a board uh, wins out. Um, but I, I, you know, you're right. I mean, whatever you end up, working on the most is the thing you get uh, comfortable with. Yeah, yeah. Howard uh, lent me his four... Was that your first four-track, the four-track that you lent me last year? Yeah, yeah. yeah. It's the first the first, reco- first multi-track recording device that I owned. I'm, I'm looking at it right now because uh, I borrowed it again. But um, I... It was kind of a revelation for me to start working in four track again after doing so much stuff in Ableton and uh, you know like like mixing hardware synths and stuff like that. It was it was really cool to go back to just being limited to four tracks and being really deliberate about uh, what was going on those four tracks. Yeah, yeah, having limitations is so useful. So you actually do things instead of just thinking about all the options forever. Yeah. Absolutely. Like, like, and not being able to, um, yeah, not being able to cycle through plugins too. That was, was, you you really have to kind of commit. I think the the thing about, especially for mixing is I feel like you do your best work mixing wise in the first 15 minutes that the song is up. And so if you eat up a lot of that time with like, does this compressor sound better than this compressor that sounds better than this compressor then by the time 15 minutes has expired and you haven't mixed the song you're only going to make uh blunted poor decisions after that fact it's kind of why rough mixes always sound way better than the record and rough mixes sound better because they're totally instinctual you're just like fuck i have an hour to mix 10 songs bang 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 sounds good let's go yeah and um Dan, remember when I hatched that idea? I hatched this idea when we were recording Expo 86. And I was, we kind of did it and it kind of worked in a way for uh, Yulia, which is I thought instead of mixing the record traditionally, so like let's say record it in 10 days and mix it in five or six days, you know, two or three songs a day, I proposed uh, every night for three nights we mix the whole record. Uh, So you'd basically end up with three sets of rough mixes for each song. And I was convinced that you would have a mixed record by the end of it. And I think Yulia was one of those songs, right? Definitely. And I think um, uh, Little Golden Age also. I'm not sure if any of Spence's songs worked with that process. But yeah, I really liked doing that because it kind of gave the sense that you can kind of lose the plot with the totality of the record, if you were, say, doing a 14-hour workday where you're tracking two songs and rough mixing both of them, and you're just forgetting about everything you did the day before and not thinking about what you're doing tomorrow. So it was, yeah, it was nice to be able to have, like, a second, like, yeah, uh, have the album as a, t- as a total thing. And, and I think there's some energy in there, you know? I think that's mm-hmm. why that mix sounds good. But actually, speak, speaking of that session, do you do you think it's better to have the band around for mixing, or would you rather get things sounding close and then give them sort of limited options? Uh, I don't. I whenever I get approached a lot to mix things I didn't record, yeah, and I think a lot of people who inquire about that expect that they won't be there, right? And one of the provisos is I'll only do it if you are there, okay? Because I really like. 
doing something and then turning around and go, do you like this? As opposed to like doing something, uploading it to the internet, sending someone a text saying it's in Dropbox. They listen to it. And then 20 minutes later, they say, no, I like the vocals better, quieter. Like, uh, I just feel like that's so, there's no, um, no momentum in doing it that way. So yeah. generally I, I like the band there. Well, I was just going to say, like, uh, I, my first experience with, well, not my first experience with sending mixes back and forth over the internet, but, but my first experience with Wolf Parade doing that was with the EP we put out when we reformed and Mike McCarthy was mixing some of the songs we ended up, I don't think we ended up using any of his mixes because, uh, Spencer kept sending notes back saying, uh, it's it's too uh, it's too bassy. Like turn up the treble, turn up the treble, and it turned out he uh, he had all the treble turned off of what he was monitoring on, and it it just <laughs> and it just it just drove Mike like Mike who is a very I've worked with Mike with Divine Fits before and he's like he's a very particular dude about mixing and I think it just drove him completely insane. <laughs> but because we were on different time zones uh, and, and we weren't in the same room together, we couldn't catch it. You know, it was like, uh, yeah, it was incredibly frustrating. So we were Are chasing you familiar this with that black around, Sabbath like, story in the eighties where they mixed the record on blown out speakers and put it out. No, <laughs> Yeah, it was called Born Again. It also had Are the worst serious? album cover. No, really? I don't know that. Was it Dio era Sabbath? Or? No, it was after that. It was like the guy from Deep Purple, I think. Mm-hmm. Oh, man. Is there like what are the other details of that story? That's like, do they know that they were mixing on bone speakers? Or are they just like. No, they thought that was the mix. Oh, man, that's hilarious. And they compensated for it and they put it out. It, and it sounds like it. <laughs> and they also did uh, Stonehenge. For real, the thing in Spinal Tap, the thing that inspired that. But instead of it being too small, it was too big and they couldn't get it in the venue. Like they actually cool. did that. Oh, that rules. I don't know any of the lore of like Black Sabbath after they were good. Yeah, me neither. Yeah, there's not that much in there, but they had a little. <laughs> it's really funny though. Do you guys feel, I went on a, last night, uh, this like, I'd heard something that, about the musical tastes you have when you're 12, 13, 14, 15 will define your tastes for the rest of your life. And so I went on this like listening spree of all the records I listened to heavily in that time. And I have to say they all hold up. Really? What, what, what were you listening to when you were that age? I was listening to the first Violent Femmes record, the first Specials record, the first English Beat record, uh, London Calling and the first Generation X record. Those were like on heavy rotation. Uh, there were a lot of U2 in the early, early part of that time, like 12 and 13 years old. And then the Smiths, uh, first, second, and third record towards the end of it. And then Elvis Costello. Um, and I think all of it holds up. Yeah, it's all good stuff. I mean, I have gone back and tried to listen to some of the metal, uh, some of the metal and like post hardcore stuff that I listened to when I was a teenager, like, and and some of it holds up and some of it really doesn't like there's some sort of kill rock stars bands, like, uh, sort of drive like Jehu influence bands that I loved that. I'm just like, this is garbage music. (laughs) (laughs) Right. It's like extremely der- derivative bad music. <laughs> it's fun. It's funny you say garbage music, Dan, because every time my daughter is in charge of the car stereo, mm-hmm. she's fifteen. Mm-hmm. It, like the the thought bubble in my head is garbage music. <laughs> you know, and sometimes it even comes out of my mouth. So, Lana, this is garbage music, and I think it's all predicated on the fact. And Dan, you know this, that when she was four. Her favorite song was Career Opportunities by The Clash. That's right. And she came to the studio one day and she asked Dan, do you like The Clash? And I was like, I am the proudest father in the world. <laughs> and now look what happened. And now look, but I figured out why. I don't know if I ever told you. I figured out why she loved Career Opportunities. Uh, why is that? Because, 
in her brain, she crosswired career opportunities with I Love Trash, sung by Oscar the Grouch. Because <laughs> <laughs> if you think about Strummer it, does have, they sound the same. Strummer does have a, a Grouchian um, uh, cant to his voice. Absolutely. I encourage everyone listening to cue up I Love Trash, followed by Career Opportunities, and they're they're eerily similar. <laughs> so, what is she listening to now, though? That is so uh, that is so offensive to your ears. Oh, it's just like it's like it's like the equivalent of fluorescent light. You know, it's like I mean, maybe that's just what I see again. You know, this is like I sound like an old man, I'm sure, but like there's just it's just all it's like as if you wrote a, a algorithm to write music for children. For teenagers. Right. You know, like, let's program this computer and this computer will spit out music that will appeal to teenagers. Every once in a while, there's something really great. And I'll be like, Svetlana, this is great. But like most of the time it's not. It's these like guys who are like trying to sing real super sensitive and I'm so sensitive and I don't fucking buy it. And it's all auto-tuned and it's all midi and it's just like totally lifeless and it's like fake emotion and it's garbage music. Well, yeah, but to uh, be fair, most pop music has always sucked in all eras. <laughs> like, this is true. Except for the late 60s, though. Except for the late 60s, right? Because that's when the music that was the most popular was actually the most cutting edge in a way. Yeah. But even like the time you're talking about, like by like 1980 with like The Clash and stuff, The Clash was popular, but they weren't like the main thing out there, I guess. Like, and even like the music that you've uh, like engineered and mixed and stuff over the years is all the same kind of thing where it's like, it's never the most popular thing on earth, what? even though it's well known. Sorry, what? <laughs> yeah, what? <laughs> but that, like, that's, that's just kind of how music's been for most of the history of pop music, I think, is that there's always some really lame trash that's very popular. And then there's a whole world of good stuff that's always being made, but you just have to like seek it out. Yeah, I guess. But I just feel like if you were listening to whatever the hits radio was, uh, 40 years ago that uh, it would just be better music, you know? I, I don't know. Maybe again, maybe this is me just being an old man, but like... That's probably true, 1981. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. You know, I feel like even to like the most... Extent, maybe. Take the most, like this, the stuff that we used to make fun of for how overproduced it was. Like take ELO or like Hollow Notes or even, uh, what's that? Steely Dan. Any of that stuff today sounds so unproduced compared to what's on the radio. And I feel like it, in that, in that time frame where you go from like what was super produced in the early eighties to what's super produced now is it's lifeless. And because it's lifeless, we can't connect to it as human beings. Actually, here's a, a theory that just popped into my head that I'm going to wholeheartedly support, even though I just made it up is that the um, life cycle of a pop song is so short now that it's easier just to do the like the path of least resistance of throw a bunch of auto tune on it, use the same presets you've been using on all the songs you're producing, and just make very fast, very easy, cheap, and they're slick because they're just like tuned, you know? Yeah, yeah. But it's the it's are, really just kind of laziness to keep churning the stuff out. It's are you working hard or are you working smart? And in this case, working yeah. working <laughs> smart is just kind of letting the algorithm do its thing. But uh, I was just thinking, Howard, like on this same tip, like maybe to make you feel a little better, it could be worse because <laughs> I, over the last couple of years, I have, uh, whenever I've been on Vancouver Island to do uh, Wolf Parade stuff, I've inevitably ended up in a car with Arlen and his children. And what they are listening to when they have control of the stereo is some of the most dystopian shit I have ever heard in my entire life. It's um, they they are obsessed or were obsessed with songs about Minecraft. So if you imagine <laughs> like almost I, like almost like a Weird Al Yankovic like parody song that is entirely about Minecraft, sung by grown ass adults in their thirties who are singing like children. Um, over the lazy, I'm familiar with these. I've seen these on YouTube. And they have, I, the first time I heard it, I was like, I was like, okay, this is some of the most abrasive, annoying shit I've ever heard, but whatever. And then I looked at the, uh, at the amount of plays on Spotify and it just like, 
easily one song just annihilates my entire catalog. Like, yeah, gotta get in on it. Yeah. My daughter would watch these YouTube videos of people playing Minecraft and just narrating over them uh, for hours. And like, uh, I didn't get it. But again, like, I guess that's, that's what dads are supposed to be for is to not get what their kids are doing, Being, you know, or into yeah. Being a parent in uh, in twenty in twenty twenty one is uh, having to sit down and tell your child that the high energy Swedish man uh, on YouTube that they love is actually like a white uh, white identitarian. You know, is a yeah. <laughs> My four year old uh, Eli came to me last weekend, and uh, he went, "Dad, what is punk?" And I was like, "Oh, we're gonna have a great weekend, son." <laughs> And uh, Sharon encouraged me and I gave him a lesson. I gave him like, I took out 10 records and uh, walked him through and I told him the story and I told him how it, it like started, you know, there's like the American version and the, the UK version and then where hardcore came from. And, and uh, he said, um, he started jumping up and down. He said, dad, dad, when people heard this music, it must have made them go crazy. <laughs> and he just started slam dancing into Sharon without being prompted. And uh, it was a great day of parenting. Are you sure that he didn't just think it was Oscar the Grouch, though? <laughs> well, you never know. He, he, Eli wasn't so, isn't, so into, uh, isn't so into Sesame Street, strangely. Yeah, that's not punk. <laughs> Patrick, Patrick Stickles, our mutual friend, had said, uh, you're really going to fuck up Rebellion because what's he going to reach for when he's 16 or 17 now that he's accepted punk at four years old? It's going to so, be Minecraft songs. Exactly. You've done exactly. You thought you were parenting well, but you've actually just ruined it. You can get yeah. a synthesis. You can get Minecraft Clash parodies. Does <laughs> that exist? Uh, I bet that, it does. If it doesn't, I would be surprised. And if it doesn't, it needs to happen. Howard's son is going to uh, pioneer that. <laughs> He just did, actually, he just did his first, uh, I recorded him on a, a record. This is children's record. I'm mixing at home. And uh, there was like some, needed to be some call and response between the singer and these children. And the children on this recording fucking sucked. And so I was like, <laughs> I'm going to get a ringer in here. And I got my son and recorded him for the first time. It was uh, it was pretty amazing. It's just nepotism in the music industry. I'm always talking about <laughs> There <Yeah>. you go. <laughs> But you need to lock him into like a really exploitative record deal now right. while you still can. Dad gets the points. That's right. Yeah. <laughs> I did find one Clash parody. Um, you know, <laughs> oh, can, no. I'm just going to watch it later. Oh, it's, no. it's very simple. It's like a kid playing an out-of-tune acoustic guitar, filming his screen. It's pretty cute. Um, Howard, I was just thinking about how you're saying like your music taste comes back around to a certain age where it's like formed. And now I'm imagining that your daughter is going to come back around to Sesame Street being like, oh man, this is like the formative music to me. In her I, 20s, be like, man, Sesame Street fucking kicks ass. When I started watching Sesame Street with her, they, they sold this uh, DVD set called Sesame Street Old School with huge fucking disclaimers on it saying this is not for educational purposes. Um, because I guess now it's all done by like some committee of educators. Whereas when they started Sesame Street, do, do you guys know how Sesame Street started? It's they only had Amazing. like 20 letters in the alphabet back then, so it doesn't hold up. <laughs> they would do they would do an entire episode about phrenology. So. <laughs> it was started because advertising had moved from the print medium, so like, you know, buy the new Ford, and it was in the newspaper, to television and radio where they started having to formulate jingles and they realized that if you, if you put something to music, it's catchier. And if you have repetition that people remember your brand name more. So all these people who are like burnt out on advertising said, what if we use this for good and teach kids how to spell an ad? And so Sesame Street was made by all these ex-advertising people. And that's why it's like one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, 10, 11, 12. And you hear that four or five times and you can count to 12. Um, that's but, cool. They're like atoning for the sin of advertising. Pretty much, yeah. yeah. But then like 10 seasons in, they started, I guess it was like a board of like super educators that came on board. So they, they had to disown those first few seasons. But when I started watching these first few seasons with her, 
So this was in 2006, 2007. I started watching the same episodes I watched in, nine, in 1974 and 75. I, I had the craziest feelings in my brain and my body, like these crazy deja vus and like seeing images I hadn't seen in 40 something years. And just like going right back to like the shag carpet and the TV that took 15 minutes to warm up and uh, it was amazing. Like it was an amazing, amazing experience. Yeah. Cause that stuff would have been completely formative to you. Right. Yeah. And it was like in the, in like some brain cell way, way, way back. That's like, has been like the door is closed and there's a sign saying, do not disturb on it. And then it just got like jostled and, uh, it filled me with great pleasure. In 2040, someone is going to watch the Minecraft song, The Clash, Should I Stay or Should I Go? And have, and have <laughs> yeah, exactly like, the same experience. Show it to their child, yeah. yeah. <laughs> I had the reverse experience with, I got, um, do you guys, uh, you probably no one on this call probably remembers Intellivision? I remember Intellivision because I coveted Intellivision. Um, that was but, one of the... Second rate Ataris, it was, right? It was the second generation. Yeah. It came out after Atari. So it was like a little more evolved than Atari graphics and sound wise. And um, my, uh, we didn't have one, but my cousin Larry had one. And I just remember going to play baseball with him for hours in his basement every weekend of, uh, in television baseball. And television baseball was like so great. And it felt like real baseball. And then they just released one of those like miniature versions with all the games in it. And I bought it and I like went to baseball and uh, like the sound effects of the applause was like, shh, like just like, I don't know, four kilohertz, just pure sine wave. And uh, and it was just like all super, super pixelated. Like the baseball was just like one square. Yeah. And I was like, this fucking sucks. Like how did this <laughs> take up so much of my life? And how did I think it was so amazing? Alex, do you have that experience with PS1? Uh, No. I mean, I, I look at those games and they don't look good, but I think there's definitely a point where objectively games before maybe 1985, you just can't play. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Other than a couple like Pac-Man or Galaga or whatever, because they're just like, it, it barely qualifies as a game. You know what yeah. holds up? Super Mario Brothers holds oh, up. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. That's one of oh, the totally, first yeah. ones that's like a modern game. But Alex, I was thinking that gameplay wise, a lot of that stuff doesn't like, you know, I played like Nintendo 64 as a kid and like Mario 64, like a Mario Kart 64 kind of sucks compared to later Mario Karts. Goldeneye is a terrible FPS now, uh, but that shit was fun at the time, but I would never play that shit again. Early 3D was a rough era. Oh yeah. yeah like Star Fox that uh, I fired up, I fired up uh, Star Fox rom recently and was just like yeah i'm gonna fucking sit down and enjoy some three-dimensional polygon graphics and it hurt my brain <laughs> it was hard it was hard to look at and slow and like clippy same with like dragon warrior i was gonna play the original dragon warrior and i just i kind of gave up and just went back to final fantasy 7 at least that Star Fox is kind of like memeable with like do a barrel roll and stuff <laughs> yeah it's nice sure. that kids don't have to deal with that anymore. But those tiger <laughs> games, those games that were like calculator screens. Yeah, like oh, like, yeah. No, yeah, like black shit, on yeah. gray LED, like liquid crystal display stuff. Yeah, no one has to pretend that's like a game anymore. Yeah, it's funny. So contrasting like music against video gaming, it's like games have objectively gotten better, whereas music has not objectively gotten better, you know, like... If anything, though, I would still say music is basically the same rather than getting worse. It's just that mainstream, like mainstream music sucks ass, but like music itself in, in general is not any better or worse. I think it's just, it's harder to know where to look, I think, because everything's so fragmentized. Yeah. And ultra saturated, the market is, it's, it's just, you're yeah. sifting. Yeah, there isn't a monoculture anymore. Yeah. Yeah. There's some people I that only listen to Minecraft songs that have 10 billion <laughs> views. Yeah. And then people that don't know what Minecraft is. Yeah, exactly. Think about think about uh how like from 1962 to 77, so 15 years, how much music changed like from the first Bob Dylan record to the Sex Pistols and everything that came in between 
Glam, T-Rex and Bowie and Led Zeppelin and, you know, the even the, the Beatles and the Stones, how those record chains and the Bob Dylan chains. So 15 years, like seismic shifts. And then if you think back to like 2006 to today, like, again, maybe I'm being an old guy who doesn't listen to all the music possibly to listen to, but it really doesn't feel like there's been a fraction of the sort of invention that there was in that 15 years. I've thought a lot about that. And I think what it is, is the same reason we don't discover continents anymore. Like we discovered a bunch of them all at once. And then we ran out of ones to discover. And that kind of happened with sound synthesis with like distortion and amplification and modulation, sine waves and square waves. Yeah. We, We got them all. I was uh, I went on my friend Michael Judge's podcast, Death is Around the Corner, uh, to talk about the history of amplification, electric guitars, and I think we have one episode left to do that's on pedals. But Alex, yeah, we we talked about that a lot. That after the Second World War and during the during the huge economic like rise of uh, the United States as a global hegemony, there was all this leftover surplus. Uh, military technology that was like super high grade electronics. And there were a lot of people who were engineers who were just tinkering in their garages. And, uh, and it was sort of this middle point between like, like mad scientist in the garage and mass production. And it created like some insane leaps forward in, in sound, like the, the wah pedal, which I mean, I feel like in I feel like in the six even in the fifties you could get like a thing and make a whole record around it. You could get a reverb tank and like yeah. build an entire career on this piece of military hardware that was uh, that was tweaked for your guitar. And hey, you, you got a new sound right there. I like that yeah, sound. Yeah, exactly. It's insane to go back and listen to Telstar or um, Rumble or. Del Shannon, Runaway. It's got a synth solo on it. Yeah. 1962. It's insane. Yeah. But I guess maybe what we're getting at here, though, is that like that kind of technology evolved in the 20th century. And then what's evolved in the 21st century isn't any of the actual mechanisms for making music, but just the way it's distributed. And I mean, computers have gotten faster, so it's easier to do at home. Mm -hmm. But you're using the same technology that existed in the 80s, but in a more convenient way form on your laptop instead of on a whole bunch of like outboard gear but like yeah it's really just how it's distributed and how culture has changed rather than the actual like sound of music and i yeah and i think there's uh i think there is this latent desire for people who produce music and make music to add the kind of mechanical error that was baked into a lot of stuff, even, even st- I'm even talking about stuff in the eighties, you know, I think, I think we've kind of reached that point now where like a lot of, you know, if you just look at trends and guitar pedals, like a lot of new guitar pedals are like, we're going to take this sound and we're going to turn it into the sound of a VHS tape dying. That's what's popular. You know, like uh, a plug-in that models Japanese reverb tanks that were laughed at. Uh, And like modeling early digital delays that maybe in the early 2000s, people would be like, keep that away from my record. I fucking hate that. But that that urge for uh, like, yeah, just a kind of grit or chaos that that a poorly made, cheaply, cheaply built Frankenstein device gave you. I always think of like burial with that where like, you know, like VHS warble has been kind of a popular thing for a while, but I liked how burial would use like CD skipping noises and things that are more abrasive like that. Cause all that stuff does come back around and becomes pleasant, you know? Yeah, absolutely. The dial up sound kind of sounds nice now. I like the dial up. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> hey, it's kind of cool. Remember when we had pleasant sounds <laughs> like the dial up sound, like the AOL dial up sound and stuff was analog. When it had that human feel. Do you guys know uh, the history of magnetic tape, how it was invented? No. It's kind of fascinating. So in World War II, I mean, most audio, most inventions in in the audio industry came from military. So in World War II, uh, Hitler would get on 
shortwave radio and make these speeches, which he knew the allies were listening to. And they were like, you know, just propaganda speeches. We will conquer and all that stuff. And Churchill would do the same shortwave radio and sort of send it into Germany to try and intimidate their troops. And so uh, German scientists found a way to record on magnetic tape by blasting it with what's called bias tone. So like super, super, like 10 times higher than humans could hear, blasted onto the tape. The magnets, the magnetic particles get excited and they want to hold on to audio with low distortion and no hiss. And so it was the first time that a recording sounded very much like the source. Right. Before that, huh. you could always tell the difference. And so Hitler would would record his speeches to tape and they would just play them in a loop. And so you had all these American soldiers who just heard this guy talking for 24 hours a day and they're like, this guy never sleeps. Like, this is crazy. It's not a recording. It doesn't sound like a recording. This guy is is literally speaking for 24 hours a day and it freaked them out. And then uh, at the end of the war, these Americans uh, stormed a radio station in Berlin and they saw this machine and it was playing this tape and they'd never seen a machine like that before. So they disassembled it and they flew it back to the USA and a company called Ampex patented it. So if you enjoy <laughs> recorded music, you can thank Hitler. Yeah, exactly. You can, yeah, all of you can also thank <laughs> Hitler for A440. The fact that A is tuned oh, to 440. Really? I didn't know that. That's a, that was a Nazi thing too. Goebbels decided music couldn't have syncopation and A, A was wandering between like A3, A432 and A444. And by rule of law, A had to be 440. When I heard this, I thought it was bullshit, but I actually fucking checked it out. And it's true. A became 440 because of the Nazi party. That's yeah. interesting. Goebbels didn't like syncopation. He would have hated Migos rapping in triplets and stuff. <laughs> <laughs> this, uh, the A440 thing kind of leads to the conspiracy theory that, um, that all music after this, the, the idea that all music after the Second World War has created like a sort of disharmony and that the real A is slightly lower than A440. Yeah, 432. If you go on YouTube, you can find so many videos of Bob Marley. Uh, or whatever, fish, the Grateful Dead, at 432 hertz, just pitch down a little bit because they think it cures cancer or something. <laughs> exactly. Yeah, it's the healing fr healing frequencies of the spheres, man. It's the frequency of the human Lyndon body. Lyndon LaRouche is like a, uh, a supporter of that theory. Yeah, yeah, that's right. LaRouche he wants all music to be in waltz time. That's one of the most interesting opinions I've heard. Man, every artist is problematic. Every artist is problematic because of Hitler helping to make electromagnetic tape. You got to stop listening to all your favorite artists, all of music. We got to start over. Listen, man, uh, my totally unlistenable anarchist crest band does not use A440 because we're, because we're not <laughs> yeah. fucking fascists. There are a lot of things where it's difficult to avoid Nazi associations like cars. Yeah, or gummy bears. Wait, explain. Uh Haribo um, continued making uh, candy during, uh, during like in the middle of the Third Reich, uh, with uh, slave labor. Haribo is a Weimar era uh, candy company. <laughs> I found this out last night because I I was looking at a package of gummy bears, and because my brain is fucking broken, <laughs> and I was thinking about uh, I was thinking about. Uh, P2 Lodge and like post, you know, just fascism spreading through Europe post the uh, Second World War. And I thought, Harbo, German, I wonder when that started. Then I said 1922. And then <laughs> uh oh. Yeah. In a way, it's kind of um, heartening though, because like reality always feels stupider and stupider. It's like, how, how, how could it get any dumber than how it is now? Right. But it's always been dumb. It's always been dumb. Whenever um, Sharon's parents live in, in the States, and so, uh, a few trips that to visit them ago, I discovered Panera Bread, which uh, I decided was the greatest uh, on-the-road restaurant of any on-the-road restaurant. Okay. And uh, I don't know why, but it's just like this one salad 
with chicken and sesame dressing was like whenever we were going on a road trip, I was like, I can't wait till we get to the Panera Bread so I can have that salad. And they're always so nice. And then like our son dropped an apple and, and the lady came over and she brought him another apple for free. And then they said, oh, you can't have two slices, but you can have, I'll give you two, get a second sandwich for free. And uh, I was just joking with her. I was like, fuck man, Panera Bread, this like, they're so nice here. It was probably started by Nazis. And I Googled it and it was started by Nazis. <laughs> <laughs> really? Okay. I thought that came That's out in like incredible. the 90s. Explain. <laughs> I just, if you Google it, there's some connection between the founder of whoever, the, the founder of Panera Bread and, and white supremacy. And I hope I'm not uh, telling a lie at this point, but there is some connection if someone just Googles Panera Bread Nazis. Uh, yeah, yeah, I just did. It says a uh, Krispy Kreme and Panera Bread owner learns of family's Nazi ties. So it's like going back through their family, I guess. Oh, they, yeah, they used forced laborers, etc. It's weird how the heads of all these industries have Nazi ties. Yeah, that's so odd. Like uh, all of these people at the top of capitalism are so amenable to Nazi ideas. I don't it's I don't know how that happens. It's almost I think as we ought to just let sleeping dogs lie and not question anything or change anything ever. It's probably a, an accident. A440 forever, baby. Yeah. <laughs> I find there's nothing more pleasurable than just listening to an A440 sine wave while eating at Panera Bread. You know, fuck. <laughs> I've I have this other podcast that I've been doing, and we we just talked about a, a Netflix movie of the week that's about like Ukrainian Nazi robots. And before I got on here tonight, I was like, "It's great. We're going to talk to Howard. Won't talk about Nazis." <laughs> <laughs> and wouldn't you know it? Every single company. <laughs> yeah, you're right. Can I tell you? Um, can I tell you all the story that I would love? someone to tell as the eulogy for when I, when I leave this earth in many, many decades, could I, could I <laughs> sure. tell you the story I would like told at, at that very day? Yes, sir. Absolutely. All right. So it was Mother's Day a few years ago and I bought my mom this really beautiful bouquet of like all purple flowers and it came in like a sort of purplish vase and she loved it. And, uh, I've rarely had, had honored Mother's Day before that. And I was like, I'm going to be a good son, a buyer. And she loved it. And so then two years ago, uh, it was like the week before Mother's Day. And I was thinking, oh, don't forget, send your mom flowers. So I Googled, uh, no, I didn't go. I looked at the email receipt for the flowers I bought her the year before, because they were such a hit. And I went to the same florist online and they doubled the price for this bouquet, instead of like $44, it was $79. And I was like, oh, fuck. So then I was like, I shopped around a bit and I found the same arrangement uh, from another florist. And so like, you know, enter your credit card details. Where do you want it sent? What do you want written on the card? And then right at the end, uh, when you choose the delivery date, there's a different price marking next to each date. And I was like, ah, oh, fuck, I thought shipping was free. And so every day shipping was, it was $10 for every single day, except on Mother's Day, it was $30 to ship these flowers. <laughs> and so they ended up being the same price as the first florist I could have checked out at immediately. And so I was like, fuck, now I'm in a bind. And so Mother's Day was on a Sunday and I thought, oh, fuck it, I'm just going to send her the flowers on Saturday She'll get them early. I'll save 25 bucks of shipping. She like, she won't care. They'll be there early and, uh, and I'll save money. And so I checked out and happy mother's day, mom on the card. And, uh, so this, the Saturday comes and my mother calls around seven o'clock at night. And I'm like, I know why she's calling. Right. <laughs> and, uh, she goes, uh, just really quickly, when are you coming into town? I was like, Oh, uh, we were thinking of coming next month. She's like, okay, I'll talk to you tomorrow. I was like, that's weird. She didn't mention the, the flowers. Hmm. So I go to bed and the next morning at like 8.59 a.m., she calls me and she goes, they're beautiful. I was like, what? <laughs> the flowers? She's like, they're beautiful. I was like, when did you get them? She's like, they just arrived. I was like, huh. Well, mom, I love you. Happy Mother's Day. And I got off the phone and I checked my credit card statement and they billed me 
the cheap rate, but they delivered them on Mother's Day. But I couldn't let sleeping dogs lay because technically <laughs> these flowers were late. So I called the folks. <laughs> <laughs> and I said, excuse me, I had placed an order for flowers to arrive yesterday and they arrived today. And, uh, and she said, but, uh, but Mr. Billerman, they were sent with a Mother's Day card. We just assumed you put the wrong date. I said, well, how do you know that my mother was even in town today? So, well, Mr. Billerman, what, uh, I was like, these flowers are late. And uh, they refunded me full value for the flowers. <laughs> Incredible. <laughs> That's great. That's business. This is someone in many decades from now, please tell this story. I will to personify me. We have recorded it for posterity, and we have to. We got to have you back on to tell uh, to tell the story about how you got a free bag of craisins uh, because of false advertising. That was that was a very good story. I have to say, <laughs> they took us. They took us for fools. Let me just give you the pressy of it, which is the uh, trademark for craisins are is craisins surprisingly sweet. And when you look at the ingredients list for craisins, ingredient number one is sugar. <laughs> so I uh, had to email the ocean spray people because uh, they take us for fools. What's surprisingly sweet about sugar, I ask you? Nothing. Nothing at all. Nothing. Nothing. Come on. This seems like a, a Kramer plotline on Seinfeld. <laughs> the tagline should be craisins. They're crazy. They go crazy in your mouth. <laughs> That's why they should be paying you the big bucks, Alex. That really is a terrible tagline. Surprisingly, Surprisingly sweet. sweet. The people from Ocean Spray said, well, Mr. Billerman, they, they're surprising to most people who have only ever eaten cranberries, which are traditionally tart. And what many people think is, huh, these are surprisingly sweet. Unless they look at the ingredients. Who's saying that? Sugar. Ocean Spray. Yeah. No, I mean, who's saying they're surprisingly sweet? What's their well, sample size? if you only had a, a cranberry, and then I say, hey, try these craisins, and you say, what are they? And I say, they're dried cranberries. You'd be like, oh, no, no, that's tart. No, no, have some. Hey, <laughs> this is surprisingly sweet. That's, that's what I they're think, saying. I uh, think if we dig deep enough, we're going to find out that Joseph Goebbels wrote the phrase surprisingly <laughs> sweet for them. It was originally written about Hitler. <laughs> yeah, Once you get to know him, he's surprisingly crazy. sweet. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Uh, but yeah, Howard, thanks for being here and uh, yeah, talking pleasure. to us. My pleasure, yeah, guys. Thank you. Yeah, thanks for coming on. <laughs>